This podcast is brought to you by Molecular Devices. With its innovative life science technology, Molecular Devices makes scientific breakthroughs possible for academic, pharmaceutical, government, and biotech customers. Head to moleculardevices.com to find out more. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Drug Target Reviews podcast, brought to you by Molecular Devices. I'm your host, Victoria Reese, editor of Drug Target Review. Today, I'm joined by Carter Mitchell, Chief Scientific Officer of Kemp Proteins, and Sharath Madazu, Manager of Protein Characterization at Kemp Proteins, to discuss the use of monoclonal antibodies, or MABs, against COVID-19, and how the pandemic has shaped their discovery and development. But before we get into it, let's get to know our guests. So, Carter, would you be able to give our listeners a bit of background to yourself? Yes, um, I am very much interested in proteins and how they interact in our physical world. I received a PhD in structural biology, characterizing the biosynthesis of natural products that are predominantly used as antibiotics and anti-cancer agents. This is using X-ray crystallography and the like, as well as biophysical, biochemical characterizations. Since then, I had moved into various developmental and management situations where I was looking for novel drugs that were more in the form of biologics and proteins, macromolecules, as opposed to small molecules. And that's what led me here today. Thanks so much. Uh, Sharath, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. I am a cellular molecular biologist by training. I have a PhD in cellular molecular and biomedical sciences from University of Vermont. And I have been uh, developing assays during my PhD to study the trafficking and signaling mechanisms of ion channels. And during that process, I got interested in uh, characterizing antibodies. And that's how I landed my first role in a small startup biotech where I led a team of research associates and scientists to characterize, test, uh, and classify antibodies in their preclinical pipeline. And in my current role at ChemProteins, I am the protein characterization and antibody characterization scientist. Brilliant. Thank you both so much and for joining me today. So let's get into it. I'd like to start right at the beginning by discussing why MABs are effective against SARS-CoV-2 and how they actually work to neutralize the virus. So Carter, would you be able to start us off by briefly explaining this? Well, there are various routes by which monoclonal antibodies can be used as therapeutics. In the case of viral neutralization, we would want to interrupt the process by which the virus either recognizes the host or the virus is internalized. Right. And in particularly uh, with SARS-CoV-2, you want to disrupt the binding of this pike protein with ACE2 receptors. And most of the neutralizing antibodies disrupt this interaction of spike protein and the ACE2 receptor in the human being. So that's how these monoclonal antibodies are able to achieve the neutralization effect. So we are essentially denying the entry into the host cells. And this is often facilitated through uh, interference with the recognition binding domain, which is often abbreviated as RBD, interacting with the ACE2 molecule that's on the host cells itself. Most of the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies are actually raised against the RBD as it stands today. So what kind of rates of effectiveness are we then seeing with MABs against SARS-CoV-2? So 
That's a big, big loaded question because the earlier phases of or the alpha coronavirus, the alpha variant of the SARS-CoV-2, most of the currently emergency use authorized antibodies seem to work a lot better. And even with the Delta variant, some of the EUA authorized antibodies seem to be working better, but these lose efficacy with the Omicron variant. So, for example, the STVMAP, PAMLA VMAP, etc., antibodies which have had the EUA authorization do not work against the Omicron variant as effectively as it did with the Delta variant or the Alpha variants. Some of the antibodies like the Sotrovimab and the newer antibody from Eli Lilly, the Beptilovimab, appear to have retained their activity in neutralizing these variants also. So there is some glimmer of hope with, uh, with the newer antibodies. So again, your mileage may, may, may vary because some of these antibodies are highly effective against the alpha variants, beta variants, but not against the gamma or the delta variants. And some are effective against the delta and alpha, but not the beta or gamma and Omicron, et cetera. And with the Omicron variant, there's at least 36 mutations that are found on the spike protein. When we were talking about the mechanism of action, we referenced the recognition binding domain. That is an intrinsic component to the spike protein, and some of these variations or mutations in the Omicron variant are present here. If the 36 mutations present on the spike protein result in differential glycosylation, that allows for the virus to be able to evade previously formed uh, immunologic responses or evade the neutralization of monoclonal antibodies. Yeah, and it's clearly evident by looking at the EC50 values from in vitro studies where you have an EC50 value ranging from 4 nanogram per mil for the uh, original SARS wild type variant versus an undetermined level with the Omicron variant. So they can't even recognize what the neutralizing EC50 is for these particular antibodies. And that, that's kind of worrying. For example, I have the data for the S309, the Sotravimab precursor. So it's EC50 for and human isolate from Tokyo was around 27.3 nanogram per mil. It's the, uh, let's consider this as the wild type versus the Omicron variant. It is 373.47 nanograms per mil. So that's a huge difference in EC50. Yeah, that's an order of magnitude, which would suggest that using this as a therapy, we would have to increase the amount that we're given to the patient by an order of magnitude, most likely as well. Right. And the same goes for the uh, Silgavimab, Tixide, GVMAP. And it's actually worse for Tixa GVMAP because according to this publication from Japan, Dr. Kinoshita and Amy Takishita et al., their publication lists a table and that actually shows that the Tixa GVMAP has an EC50 of 1.92 against the wild type, whereas with the Omicron variant, it is 1,299. So some of the antibodies are faring better and some are not. And this is huge discrepancy. It also as Carter mentioned, depends on where the antibodies are binding to on the RPDs. If that particular epitope has a lot of mutations that the Omicron has accumulated, that would severely affect the neutralizing ability of these antibodies. Definitely. So speaking in terms of comparison to other therapies, what advantages would you say that MABs have over other strategies such as convalescent plasma therapy in the fight against COVID-19? With the monoclonal antibodies, we know exactly how much of a neutralizing antibody we are administering the patient. So that's a huge advantage. 
With the convalescent plasma therapy, A, you're expecting that the donor is still producing neutralizing antibodies, and B, he or she is producing in sufficient amounts to be effective at all. And so that's the one-one clear advantage. And uh, we can also talk about the plasma incompatibilities between patient to patient and any diseases that could be carried over if the plasma is not handled appropriately or tested for diseases such as hepatitis or HIV, et cetera. There are certainly some benefits in generating monoclonal antibodies. And while we've been speaking about one monoclonal antibody at a time, the reality is, is you could make a subset of a pseudo-polyclonal mixture or cocktail of monoclonal antibodies to be able to effectively neutralize any sort of variants that might come about. One of the major issues that we had with the SARS coronavirus 2 is that all of this was happening at lightning speed. This is one of the first times that we've had a pandemic with these types of molecular tools that would allow for us to analyze a pandemic as it unfolds, getting genomic information about the virus and mutation propensity and whatnot. It was actually quite difficult to come up with an appropriate strategy that would fit for most people. Having monoclonal antibodies that have specific epitopes that they recognize would make it so that, let's say five years from now, if we had a bad case of a new type of variant that came out, we might be able to say, use monoclonal antibody that was raised against wild type and one that came out in 2023 as a combination therapy to have more efficacy against that particular variant. How has the pandemic advanced the development of MABs? Would you even say that that's the case? Yeah, this is actually kind of an interesting question. The current state of monoclonal antibody development in general has been moving forward quite rapidly. There's been a lot of drugs that have been approved that are monoclonal antibodies or even biospecifics. The monoclonal antibody-based therapy strategy, I think, is most applicable when you have a very specific question that you need to answer. The global type of application of a monoclonal-based antibody therapy for, say, a pandemic is kind of cost prohibitive, very expensive to the point where it's difficult to be able to treat people in uh, less developed countries. So I think one of the major things that happened was really the implementation of artificial intelligence-based de novo monoclonal antibody design. Right. To add to what Cara is saying is that uh, the process for antibody development has been established and the pandemic i believe created a sense of urgency to develop these antibodies because during the early phase of the pandemic we did not know when a vaccine would come out how effective the vaccine would be and currently there is still some hesitation to take the vaccine because these vaccines have been approved at lightning speed but antibodies people do trust and the process has been established there, I think they're more comfortable with the monoclonal antibody-based therapies. In terms of the technology development, I think as an assay development scientist, I'm really excited that the BSL level two labs are able to test for neutralizing antibodies using the pseudoviruses that, that were used primarily for HIV infections in the past or in academic labs. Now they have come into forefront. Technologies such as high-throughput SPR, high-throughput BLI, have also garnered interest during the pandemic. Uh, advances in high-throughput DLS, FLDs, et cetera, have, have also improved a lot, and there are newer, newer technologies coming up. And as Carter mentioned, AI is being implemented that adds a layer of uh, complexity and speed to the antibody discovery platforms. Mm. Clearly, the pandemic has significantly shaped the development of MAPS. 
But I also wanted to ask you, speaking more generally now, what does the traditional workflow look like for MAV discovery and development? Yeah, one of those is the antigen with which you're developing your monoclonal antibodies using a traditional sense. So we're not talking about in silico and artificial intelligence design, but more of the generation of your antigen followed by administration or immunization of an animal with that antigen, getting animals with serum that actually have a response that you're looking for, followed by isolation of beta cells and fusion to generate the hybridoma. All of those uh, uses you know, the traditional type of monoclonal antibody development pipeline. The antigen itself is extremely important to generate, and most of these antigens for COVID-based uh, monoclonal antibodies was specifically raised against that spike protein, a trimeric protein that consists of S1 and S2 proteins. So the antigen itself is very, very complicated. It's a trimer. It also has a propensity of forming high molecular weight aggregates, which may or may not be great for an immunization strategy. Why am I digging so deeply into this antigen conversation? The old adage, garbage in, garbage out, applies also for monoclonal antibody development. If you have a non-optimized antigen going into your workflow, you're going to get not awesome monoclonal antibodies. And that's a really big point that has to be driven home here. Yeah, I totally agree. And the uh, glycosylation diversity, the epitope diversity is also important for uh, your antibody development platform. It depends even between mammalian cells, the glycosylation pattern would be different. For example, HEK cell versus an actual lung cell, SARS-CoV-2's favorite target would have different glycosylation patterns. And that would matter how an antibody is neutralizing the virus versus if it's not able to neutralize it could just be a single glycan that could influence all of this or a single positional change and insertion or deletion like we have seen with these variants. The antigen itself, as Carter says, plays a very, very critical role in the success of your antibody. Definitely. So what are then some of the biggest challenges in this kind of workflow? Are there any bottlenecks in particular that you find? So there are certainly bottlenecks Let's say in the case of COVID, we couldn't really generate the antigen until we knew what the viral genome was. Once we had an understanding of that, we went through synthesis of those various components and expressed them and tried to optimize the expression and purification simultaneously to generate these these molecular tools, which could also be antigens, would then allow us to kind of grade or assess how good our expressions and purifications are. That was one of the problems at the beginning of the pandemic is that we didn't have any tools available. We had to make them and analyze them and rely on the collaborative nature of scientists to publish the information from their own labs to see if we can converge on an understanding for the pandemic as it unfolded. So that was quite a bit of a bottleneck, to be honest, but using the traditional workflow of immunization of an animal and then the generation of hybridoma, we're talking about probably eight weeks solid for us to be able to generate some hybridoma with monoclonal antibodies that are further characterized. There are other ways that you can get around this, which would be like phage display or in the context of artificial intelligence, de novo monoclonal antibody generation. 
But all of them have their benefits and drawbacks. To be honest, the best way probably to do this would be a multi-pronged approach where you are generating the antigen while also doing in silico analysis to understand how you can possibly improve upon that. And once you have the hybridoma, you know, go through this idea of affinity maturation so that you can get the critical quality attributes that are required for a druggable monoclonal antibody. And just to add to what Carter has just mentioned, apart from identifying the sources of your antigen and having the best quality antigen for your immunization strategy, once you have identified and immunized your animal, getting the appropriate number of B cells to make your hybridoma single cell isolation, that could be challenging too. Traditionally, we grow these uh, hybridomas in semi-solid medium that allows for single cell to form a colony, but it's a slow process. Now we have tools and robotic instruments that could allow you to print single cells into each well, thereby improving both the throughput as well as the efficiency. And I think on part of the documentation, now you have evidence to show the regulators that you have generated a single clone from a single cell from your hybridoma fusion. And you are also able to estimate the clonal outgrowth efficiency from these single cell hybridomas uh, that you have generated. So the tools have come into place and they have been in place before, but now they have come into limelight because of the pandemic. Now, with that thought of isolation of hybridoma, once, of course, we find our preferred monoclonal antibody hybridoma, we would then want to generate a recombinant form of that entity. Realistically, hybridoma are only so good at producing uh, monoclonal antibodies. And ultimately, to have something that can go through the clinic um, and get approval, you need to have absolute control over your molecule of interest. That would require then the recombinant generation of the monoclonal antibody and the formulation into a human antibody type of structure that would allow for the appropriate immunologic response. That process does take a little bit of time. We have to sequence. You have to then manipulate the gene into a human construct. And then most likely we would be going into maybe a CHO stable cell line so that we can generate 8 to 20 grams per liter of monoclonal antibody of interest so that we can then have a stable clone CHO production that would be able to get into full approval. That actually takes some time. Today, the strategies for the generation of stable clones and CHO, you could possibly get that down to about 12 days. Optimization of the feed structure, et cetera, and and then also limited dilution for the uh, cloning, the clonality, um, that all takes a little bit of time. We're probably talking about six months in order to be able to generate that full product. And also, uh, it's not necessary that the FC region of the monoclonal antibody is necessary. The generation of monoclonal antibodies as a therapeutic is quite expensive, and it's costly to the patient as well. That makes it kind of limited in its application. However, we can generate SCFVs and VHHs using uh, the CDRs that are present from the monoclonal antibodies we find from hybridoma, we convert those into smaller nanobodies, and those can be produced in E. coli at a much more cost-effective manner. And that drives down the costs and make it so it's in a broadly applicable base therapeutic as opposed to those only in developed countries. Exactly. And I think cost is one factor that we definitely have to consider over here to be practical. If vaccines are doing well, 
it doesn't seem appropriate to develop a very expensive antibody therapy unless it's cost effective. And uh, you also need to be thinking about other lesser developed countries where they don't have access to vaccines or storage facilities. And as Carter mentioned, some of these nanobodies are pretty stable and they could be stored at less stringent conditions, maybe minus 20 or a freezer that could be very stable and provide the same protective effect. Clearly, it's beneficial to accelerate the MAB discovery and development workflow. Just wondering if you could give any other examples of how that can be achieved, including when ensuring monoclonality. As I mentioned, to ensure monoclonality, we have methods such as a cell printing, or we could use a colony picker, for example. Let's say you're picking an isolated colony from hat medium, and your instrument is able to take a picture before and after picking that colony that would ensure or provide evidence that you're picking a single clone out of it. And you can test it further down the line with cell-based assays or immune-based assays to ensure it is a monoclonal version of the antibody or else you'll have to go back, subculture that colony and make sure that it is a single clone. And I think current technology and tools, for example, image-based instruments that could provide evidence that you have a single cell. So the colony you picked is a monoclone and not a polyclone, et cetera. And then you have other confirmatory tests to identify which particular type of antibody you have, IgG1 or G2, et cetera. Those kind of assays could be performed to make sure that you have monoclonality and your clones are secreting a single variety of the antibody. And you can also confirm with epitobinding assays from that particular clone if you have a single epitobinding antibody versus a multiple polyclonal antibody situation. And so that's speaking to, you know, the hybridoma and looking for clones that you would like to move forward with. Uh, I think one of the great ways to decrease the turnaround time is to implement high throughput robotics to interrogate the clones a little bit further. Automated purifications from the clones now allows Sharath to have a purified monoclonal antibody that he can then interrogate biophysically and understanding if this protein is behaving the way that we want it to. We're talking about, does this monoclonal antibody love to make high molecular weight aggregates? And if so, would we be able to see it interacting with the antigen for a biophysical type of characterization for kinetics or affinity? So utilizing robotics in a high throughput manner, number one, it's always better to have a thousand clones versus one. And that way you can actually look at all of them. I like to call it the protein space or epitope space, where we can ensure that we are getting full coverage of the antigen and then choosing the molecules that have the attributes we want, as opposed to having a single uh, monoclonal antibody that is our only bet and it must work or else everything will fail. So really a funnel is, is what we're looking for always. We want to have numerous clones in the beginning of our funnel, and then we want to pull that down into maybe a subset of 10 or 100 that you think would be the best molecules to move forward with. Then we can scale those up and then actually assess them further in a real type of experimental situation where we have enough material to do additional animal studies, toxicology, et cetera. But it's not very beneficial to take a molecule initially that won't be able to be moved into any further large-scale purifications because of attributes that would be detrimental to the drug. Many companies prefer to have a 
go, no-go decision early on. We want to kill programs that are going to be a monetary drain and focus our efforts on those that are most likely to be successful. Definitely. Would you then say, in light of that, that the automation of lab processes will be key for MAB development in the future? I can say that the automation of lab processes is key already today. Most laboratories are already implementing automated routines because they are capable of generating data for thousands of molecules a week. You can have automated synthesis, expression, and purification followed by automated biophysical characterization to allow you to fully understand the space with which you're operating. And it's paramount that uh, procedures are utilizing automated workflows. And one other advantage that automation provides is that the analysis methods or the selection criteria would be unbiased. That's huge because you don't want to bias your target molecule or your antigens or your antibodies based on one person's opinion of it. You want to diversify your library of antibodies or your library of your mutants, etc. So you need a, a thoroughly unbiased approach for it, which these automated instruments or the robotic softwares could provide for you. And the analysis of it also would be crucial. And as far as talking about decreasing bottlenecks, I mean, time to market is a major consideration here. If you have automated processes working around the clock, it is clear that you will probably get to your answer much quicker than if one person was doing the work themselves. In light of everything that we've discussed so far, of course, the acceleration of MAB development and discovery is going to be advantageous in the context of SARS-CoV-2. As our last thoughts now, what is the future of SARS-CoV-2 treatment going to look like? And do you think MABs are going to be key for this? I think that MAB-based therapeutics will always have their place. However, monoclonal antibodies are a little bit more involved than just therapies. The diagnostic aspect is paramount. We couldn't actually detect SARS necessarily unless we had monoclonal antibodies or polyclonal sera for even Western blotting. So keep in mind that most of these diagnostics are antibody-based, and so we will always need to have those around so that we can assess what's happening. The antibodies themselves actually grade the antigen production and vaccine candidates if sometimes we would want to see if we can actually still have neutralization of an antigen with a monoclonal antibody. That's our reference. That would allow us to gauge how our vaccine strategies might be moving forward. But of course, in light of the mRNA-based vaccine with lipid nanoparticles, this kind of earth-shattering and changing the way that we think, there are still proteinaceous vaccines that are being generated, whether that be through presentation of some sort of virus or actually isolated trimeric spike itself. It seems like, from my experience, most of the uh, European countries and the rest of the world outside of America is a little bit more focused on the protein-based vaccine candidates. These will always need molecular tools such as monoclonal antibodies and polyclonal antibodies to confirm that they have the proper fold and they are capable of performing as expected. To be more effective monoclonal antibody therapies, I think Currently, the unvaccinated population, uh, such as infants, or patients with comorbidities who do not respond well to vaccines, or people who have vaccine hesitation, those would be 
the target population where monoclonal antibodies would help to reduce the severity of the disease. But again, the cost has to make sense uh, to be more practical for monoclonal antibodies to be just as effective as vaccines are in today's market. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Carter and Sharath, for joining me for this podcast and for your excellent points. It has been fantastic to speak with you both. Well, thank you for the opportunity. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having us. And this has been a pleasure speaking with you all. And thanks, of course, to our listeners for tuning in to this Drug Target Review podcast brought to you by Molecular Devices. I've been Victoria Reese, editor of Drug Target Review. Keep an eye out for our next podcast coming soon.